backwards in our reading, and there are some good reasons for that. And we're at um, this section, which is all about trumpets. I'm kicking myself because I should have got Colin to bring his trumpet and sound it. He'd have loved to have done that, I know, um, to make a glorious noise. Of course, trumpets, when a trumpet is sounded, it can mean one of two. It can mean the arrival of somebody good and great and somebody, somebody important, or a trumpet sounds to warn, to warn. A trumpet sounds, of course, to bring soldiers to battle, that the enemy are coming. So this is the time of the seven trumpets, and we're going to hear what happens when the seventh trumpet sounds. Over to you, Sophie. The reading is from Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. It's on page 1240 of the Church Bible. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders, who were seated on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. These very, very, I think, surprising words of Jesus. Let me tell you what has happened. There's been some kind of terrible um, uh, killing and uh, Pilate um, has taken blood and, uh, of those killed and mixed them with sacrifice, a terrorist attack of some sort, and then a tower has collapsed. And let's see how Jesus responds to questions that he's answered, and then he tells a short parable at the end. Chapter 13 of Luke. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. 
Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig round it and fertilise it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. As we come to listen to Revelation chapter 8, I want us to keep in mind the reality of God's judgment. Jesus says, repent or you will all perish. But also keep in mind his extraordinary patience. That fig tree that in that vineyard is not cut down straight away. Sophie. Uh, We're in Revelation chapter 8, reading from verse 1, and it's on page 1239. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer, with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. Thank you, Sophie. With Bibles open, let's pray. Our Father, your... Well, let me begin where we will finish. It was a glorious finish, wasn't it? Verse 15 of chapter 11 says this, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, 
the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. All the way through Revelation, John's vision keeps giving us a picture of what it will be like at the end. These different sections which he's giving us. And to know the future always helps us to live in the present. Those of our young people who've got exams coming next summer, they know that there's going to be a date with destiny in the summer, and so they're working very hard now. To know the future is to be able to respond rightly in the present. And it is a glorious uh, hope that we have, a sure and certain hope that we have, and we'll come to that great bit at the end. But what will the world be like before that happens? What will it be like for Christians before that happens? What do we need to expect and to do? And also, as we go through this, I want us to think, what is our God like? It's interesting, we're starting Micah tonight, and that is actually the question that Micah asks um, those who hear him, what is the Lord really like? What is the Lord like? Because it is easy, isn't it, to have our image of God and to make God in our image let me say that we might be uncomfortable with some of the things that we read this week. And we are going to to try and go through four chapters. But I want us to remember that we come later to the Lord's Supper. It is loving, isn't it, that God tells us about the awfulness of sin and the reality of his judgment. Indeed, that is the great work of his spirit as the Lord Jesus taught us to make those real to us, and then to remind us of how loving and gracious the Lord Jesus Christ is as we repent, as we turn to him, as we trust him for forgiveness, as he restores us and renews us and gives us hope. This writing in Revelation is vision, not video. It is Picasso, not photo, if you know Picasso's Uh, pictures which are lots of different images and they are not a photo. And John's vision is full of symbolic images. Most of these images are taken from the Old Testament. That's why we need to understand the Old Testament. And an important principle in understanding the Bible is what's called the perspicuity or clarity of Scripture. That does not mean that every verse of the Bible is crystal clear, but that the main points, the main truths, the main thrust of God's Word are clear and understandable. And we understand the obscure in the light of what is clear from other parts of Scripture. Can I just say as well, and I've already alluded to this, nor should we read this book as a chronological sequence. I think that that leads us into lots of, I frankly think, difficult problems. 
This isn't just showing us the order of every event in time. When the apostle says at various points, after this, he simply sees something else which is happening in this vision at the same time as the other things that he has seen. It's a a different angle or perspective on the same events. As David uh, very helpfully said, it's the action replay of the game from a different angle, same game, the same events. And previously we've heard about the seven seals, and uh, here again actually we read again about the incense of the prayers of the saints rising up to God in heaven, and as the prayers go up, so six trumpets are blown. Look at verse 2 with me. And we're going to read parts of this again. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angels' hands. So remember that John writes to his first readers who suffer and are persecuted, just as he was, and they are to endure patiently. And we've heard God's people pray, how long? How long? Again, an echo from the Old Testament, the Psalms often have that prayer. And now as the curtain is pulled back, we see what God is doing. And as God's oppressed people pray, so God is revealed as coming in judgment on a sinful world. Verse 5, then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. A trumpet can announce something glorious. Think of the king's coronation. But also it's of something awful. A trumpet sounds to warn of advancing armies, the need to be ready. Now, as we look at these judgments, I want us to remember that these judgments of God are going on all through history. Romans chapter 1 is clear. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of people. Present tense, God's wrath is being revealed, his just anger. And um, he, I, I sometimes put it this way, it's as if God says, if you want to live in sin and rebellion against my loving rule, then you will do so, and this is what it will be like. He hands people over to their sin. And rebellion and war and evil and devastation and death result. 
So on my outline, which I hope will be helpful, I want to make my first point, chapters 8 and 9. Uh, Repent urgently. God gives over a sinful world to judgment and death. Now, trumpet one seems to be a judgment on creation, creation in chaos. Look with me at verse 7. Then the first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. This is an environmental disaster, isn't it? Think back to Exodus. In the book of Exodus, God's oppressed people cry out to the Lord for freedom... God hears their prayers and God comes in judgment on Pharaoh to try to make him repent. And there are plagues of hail and water turns to blood and animals die. Verse 10, the third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. In Exodus, Moses is to throw a piece of wood into water to make it sweet. Here, that is reversed. The water turns bitter. And in this judgment, many die. 12, verse 12. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Now, let me say that... um, I. I take it that these judgments can't be the final judgment because it is only a partial judgment. Only a third is destroyed. It is revelation maths. It's a partial judgment. But do you see how creation is not as it should be? Genesis 3 talks about how the earth is cursed or judged by God. When you see a thistle, it's to remind us that the land is hard to work. Now, I realize that the thistle is the emblem flower of Scotland. I realize that. But why is land so difficult at times to work and work so hard? It's It's pictorial, isn't it? Romans 8 talks about how God has given over this creation to futility and decay and death. So creation itself is under the judgment of God because of human rebellion and sin. And as we hear of the chaos in creation, 
The first thing it should do before we recycle, and I'm not trivialising that anyway, is to repent. So turn on the news. To a greater or lesser extent, this is not much different to what we read here, apart from the colourful symbolic language and the revelation maths, an earthquake, a tsunami, a volcano, a terrible drought, an awful famine, a pandemic, a devastating hurricane, a flood. This is the normal experience of this earth, more or less, through history. Then in verse uh, 13 and into chapter 9, things get more terrifying. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. And we read of Satan and demonic activity, Satan, whom the Lord Jesus knew to be real. Verse 1, the fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. Jesus says in Luke 10 that he saw Satan fall like lightning. The trumpet blows. And Satan is given the key of this abit or abyss. Verse 2, when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of the scorpions of the earth. Satan and his demons are active. Uh, horrors are unleashed. Again, we're not to literally expect locusts like scorpions. Uh, it is picking up the language from Joel. Verse 7, the locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. It is dramatic, symbolic imagery to, yes, to wake us up. Verse 11, they had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek is Apollyon, that is destroyer. Satan, the great destroyer. And with his demons bringing war and destroying, bringing disharmony. But do you see that God is in charge, even, yes, of evil? Can I say not that they're the same or equal? God is always good and gracious. He's not responsible for evil, but he is sovereign over evil. He always is and will be, and we'll see more of what happens to Satan. But in this world, there is demonic activity, destroying. And then we read of deadly wars. If you turn over the page to verse 13... The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, 
and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Ah, people say, now we can earth it. Well, in one sense we can earth it. Euphrates is the river in Babylon. But Babylon in Revelation comes to symbolize rebellion against God and uh, represent evil, as indeed it does in other parts of the Bible. Verse 15, and the four angels who'd been kept ready for this very day and hour and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. It is an image, isn't it, of huge armies fighting. In World War I, 60 million soldiers and other armed services fought. 20 million died. In World War II, 100 million armed service men and women fought and 75 million in all died. And I was amazed recently, actually, as I was preparing this, to discover in Korea, there are nearly 15 million retained and ready to fight on either side of that great divide of North and South Korea. God takes no pleasure in wars and death. But in his judgment, his just anger, he hands us over to sin and death so that we come to our senses and repent urgently. Look at what John says in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver, bronze and stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. God wants us to urgently repent. He wants the world, when it experiences creation, not as it should be, and evil at work and deadly wars, he wants people, sinners, to repent. Jesus said, wouldn't have passed a counselling course, that interlude in Luke 13, would it? That when people come saying, Are they not more, aren't they more guilty? In a self-righteous way, he says, no, repent, you will all perish. And in that little parable in Luke 13, isn't it extraordinarily patient of God? How patient God has been with Israel, with the Arab world, with the Western world. And when wars come, we should wake up and make sure that we repent. As indeed we should hear when we hear of anybody has died. I said to Ian and Hoko this week in Stan's death, of course, that every single time somebody dies, it is a reminder of God's judgment. The wages of sin is death. Praise God that Stan was trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and we should make sure that we're right with God through repenting and trusting Christ. Death is, of course, both physical, and we know that. We see it being worked out in our lives, don't we? Our bodies decay and decline and get diseased. But praise God, inwardly we're being renewed as we trust Jesus. But of course, spiritual death, we're separated. Repent, repent, urgently back to Jesus and his love and grace and forgiveness. C.S. Lewis famously said this, We can ignore even in pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. How loving of God to tell us and to warn us. How loving of God that his son Jesus will forgive us. We're going to come to the Lord's table in a moment. Then secondly, I want to remind us that we need to speak or witness faithfully amidst all the persecution and hardship. Now, chapters 10 and 11 are the hardest chapters in the Bible. Let me give some pointers in a limited amount of time. We've not read them. And they come as an interlude after the sixth trumpet, before the seventh trumpet. And I think they are all about God's witness to a sinful world. Look at verse 7 of chapter 10. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Now the mystery of God is explained in Colossians and Ephesians. The mystery, remember always, is an open secret. It is a secret that is now revealed that the gospel is for all people, not just Jew, but for non-Jew, and it is to go out to all nations. And that was all promised in the Old Testament. Verse 8, then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Notice that John is now involved. This is a commission for him, the apostle. Go and take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. John receives a scroll. As somebody said to me beforehand, this is, this is from Ezekiel. Yes, the image is taken from Ezekiel. It is of a bitter, sweet scroll. Verse 9, so I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. I will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Ezekiel prophesied to God's people in exile in Babylon. Here was God's word, his promise, sweet word of salvation. But it was in the midst of Babylon, in exile, bitterness, not where they should be. And you see, John is to testify to many nations. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and king. And you see, as John testifies, as he writes, and, and as he speaks, he too will experience sweetness mixed with bitterness. Isn't that the way it is? 
For us, the sweetness of the gospel, it's wonderful, isn't it? Sweet as honey. But the bitterness of opposition, of persecution, of rejection, of mockery. And then next we get a measuring rod, an image taken again from Ezekiel, verse 11. I was given, this is... um, Verse 1 of chapter 11, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 11, I was given a reed like a measuring old was told, go and measure the temple of God on the altar with its worshippers, but exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles, they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And again, Ezekiel was given a vision of the temple that would come, and he had to measure out a vast temple. And the nations were going to stream into this temple. And John here is told to measure the temple, but not the part given over to the Gentiles. Unbelieving Gentiles will come and trample over the temple. But God measures off and numbers his people. He knows exactly who his people are. And the witness will go on. Verse 3, And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. They have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. (laughs) Two witnesses. (laughs) Again, the imagery is from the Old Testament. In the prophecy of Zechariah, there are two olive trees and they represent two prophets who serve the Lord Elijah, who brought a drought for three and a half years against wicked King Ahaz and defeated the prophets of Baal. Moses, who brought the great plagues as wicked Pharaoh refused to repent. Turning waters into blood. Two great prophets representing the Old Testament and they're to serve faithfully bringing God's word, calling people to repentance. And they did so in the midst of great hardship and opposition, days of compromise. Verse 7. Now when they finish their testimony, the beast comes up from the abyss, will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. I do think this is symbolic of the the gospel going out. And as it's proclaimed, it's not well received. The beast hates it. And they're opposed in the city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, a city full of sexual immorality, a city called Egypt, symbolizing a ruler who would not repent, And all like Jerusalem, where the Lord Jesus was killed, full of religious people who would not repent. 
Now, in the New Testament, the temple is you. The church of Jesus is the living temple. These are the dead stones, you're the living stones. And in the midst of persecution and hardship, God is adding to that number, isn't he? In every expression of his temple, as the gospel is proclaimed. And it is done so in the midst of hardship and persecution and opposition and mockery. A few Sundays ago, I was speaking at Union Hall uh, in Manchester, where Adam Beatty, a former trainee here as pastor, and at lunch I sat opposite a Chinese student who's studying here, seven years of architecture, and I asked him about being a Christian in China. And he said this, he said, everything is fine while we meet quietly in houses. But the moment we do anything public, the authorities clamp down. So public testimony doing something on the streets, delivering the Trinity 150 brochure, means opposition and persecution and prison and death, possible death. Now that's the same in many, many places. Verse 9 is a horrible image, isn't it? For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. I do think, as I say, this is about symbolic, figurative of the public testimony of the church. But of course it's not received well, is it? Don't be surprised if nobody cares if Christians are persecuted. It's striking that, isn't it, around the world. So many Christians being persecuted and very little actually is said about that. And this is what it will be like for 1,260 days or three and a half years taken from Daniel, symbolizing the whole age of the church, half of the perfect or complete number of seven But gloriously, God's people will be raised. Read on in your own time, verse 11, by God's breath of life. And we come finally to chapter 11, verse 15. And I want to say that we're called to persevere, hopefully. Hopefully. Not there in the sense of wishful thinking. That is the way we use the word hope, don't we? I hope it's going to be sunny tomorrow in Buxton. Absolutely no hope of that, actually. But biblical hope is sure and certain. Biblical hope is sure and certain because we can always trust God's promises. And gloriously, verse 15, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. The end of creation chaos, the end of Satan and evil, the end of death, the kingdom of Jesus will triumph and he will reign forever. And notice that it will be a day of reward or judgment 
and reward. As you see, 18, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name. Look at this, both great and small. Isn't that glorious? That Christian who we know nothing about in some faraway land, martyred, but they will be rewarded, as will we as we trust the Lord Jesus and persevere with hope. Judgment is coming, but gloriously the salvation. And the destroyers will be destroyed. Notice the end of verse 18. My first church leader, Richard Buse, wonderful church leader, he used to say this in his memorable style. Think of all the isms of this world. Capitalism, socialism, secularism, communism, agnosticism and atheism. His list was longer. Every ism has become and will become a wasm. And Christianity stands at the grave of every one because our king will reign forever. Let's pray, shall we? Verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. We thank you, our gracious Father, for this wonderful reminder that the kingdom of the world one day will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and God's temple, your temple in heaven, will be opened and there will be a great multitude of people drawn from every nation and we will be in your presence bringing you praise and worship and thanks. Please help us now in this present age to persevere with this great hope, to witness faithfully whatever that involves this week, just saying maybe one word about the Lord Jesus to somebody we know, maybe inviting somebody to a carol service, all the time realising that judgment is all around us and that the final judgment is to come. And yet you have provided a glorious and wonderful saviour in the Lord Jesus. And please help us now as we come to his table to remember his death, his body broken, his blood shed, that indeed he is our saviour. Please help us to come and be reassured, to be reassured and encouraged by your love and grace to those who repent and believe. And for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.